My name is Philippa Melopsch, and my presentation is entitled Half Victim, Half Accomplice, Cat Person, and Narcissism. In December 2017, a short story published in The New Yorker went viral. Christian Burpinian's cat person described the brief relationship between 20-year-old Margot and Robert, an older man in his mid-30s. The narrative, focused on Margot's perspective and thoughts, described what some called a toxic date and culminated in a skin-crawling sex scene. Within a week, the internet was filled with a fierce online controversy. For some, this was about power. For others, it was a story about a vain and manipulative young woman. Most importantly, a surprising number of women and many men found the story remarkable, remarkably relatable, more like a documentary than fiction. Cat Person became emblematic of a certain kind of fraught but mundane sexual interaction, and its reception turned into a fascinating crystallization of our contemporary debates about men, women, and sex. A dominant reading of the story emerged in online commentary. I'll call this the dominant pop feminist reading. It was a reading on which Cat Person was about the subtle coercion and victimization that pressure women into undesired sex. What I want to do today is push back against this reading and propose another feminist alternative. Looking at the story through the lens of Simone Beauvoir's notion of narcissism, I will propose that we see it as not being about undesired sex, but about sex that is desired in a tragically alienated, narcissistic way. I'll try to defend a view of the story where cat person is a study in the phenomenology of narcissism. But first, a little about the short story and its reception. Rupinian's narrative starts with a classic boy-meets-girl moment. Margot is a college student working at an independent cinema in her small American college town. Robert is the somewhat cute older customer she flirts with. He comes back, asks for her number, and we then follow their text-mediated exchange, punctuated by a brief in-person encounter. This leads to their first official date. Robert meets Margot and drives them to see a movie, followed by drinks at a local bar. Margot starts thinking of what it would be like to have sex with Robert, and decides to go to his house. What, it in, what ensues is a deeply disturbing sexual encounter. Margot is repulsed by Robert's body, but she thinks of how hard it would be to, quote, stop what she had set in motion, end quote. Instead of leaving, she goes on to have sex with him while retreating into what she calls a state of pine stasis, focusing at times on her own beauty, on Robert's excitement, and on how awkward, ridiculous, and humiliating the situation becomes. Robert behaves as if they were in a porno, but then starts talking about his feelings and insecurities. He drives her home. She tries to cautiously end communication, but in relentless texts, Robert says he misses her. He does not know what he did wrong. He gets jealous and wonders if she's seeing someone else. The story ends with Robert's last text, an accusation in a single word, whore. Cat person was a relatively unprecedented cultural phenomenon. It became the most read piece in the New Yorker for the whole year, 
even though it was published only a few weeks before the end of 2017. It started a bidding war for Christian Rapinian's debut book, You Know You Want This, which was published last year. Recall that 2017 was also the year of Me Too. Accusations against Harvey Weinstein surfaced in the fall, kickstarting a string of high-profile cases. Cat Person became part of this collective reckoning. As the Guardian quote here put it, it encapsulates the dynamics of the Me Too discussion where at last the voices of women's experiences are being heard. Two factors made Cat Person stand out from other Me Too episodes, though. Firstly, this was a story about anonymous everyday people, not the rich and the famous of Hollywood. Secondly, this was not a case of criminal, clearly criminal behavior. In fact, it, was, it moved the conversation from rape and sexual assault to what got called the gray areas of soul-crushing sex on the internet that seemed to involve everyone. But if this was not about rape or sexual assault, what exactly was it about? What exactly made Margot and Robert state so fraught, so skin-crawling, and so toxic? One influential diagnosis of what had gone wrong began to form among Twitter users, mostly women, and feminist-influenced opinion columns in popular uh, magazines. This was a tale of heterosexual dating, gender, power imbalances, and the blurry edges of sexual consent. As another commentator put it, cat person is about power, about what benefits it can confer, and about who gets to exercise it at whose expense. Indeed, Margot's struggle to articulate her disinterest to Robert amounts to more than discomfort, more than awkwardness, it is an overt struggle for dominance. On this view, the story was about the undesired sex women have anyways because of their lack of power. It was an example of how patriarchal culture and male violence, even if only potential, compel women to do things they otherwise wouldn't do. Margot's attitude is reflexive and self-protective in the face of this threatening and hostile world. She's doing the best she can navigating it. What I want to propose is that there's something more insidious at work. The acute feeling of nausea and the skin-crawling quality that many reported the story had point to something more insidious, and we can see this by engaging substantially with the rich phenomenological description in Cat Person. I propose that we recenter that dimension of the story by looking at the figure of the narcissist in Simone Beauvoir's classic work, The Second Sex. Narcissism for Beauvoir is a well-defined process of alienation. A narcissist is someone who makes herself both the subject and the absolute project of her life. Now, Narcissism is appealing to any human being. It is a way to uh, relieve oneself of the burdens of subjectivity, to avoid the perils and angst of actually having to have plans and projects and doing things in the world at which one can fail. It is a faux project, one at which one cannot fail, being oneself. 
But if narcissism is something appealing to any human being, it is extra appealing to women. They're more likely to be drawn to narcissism, Beauvoir says, for two reasons. One, women are often frustrated subjects. They're actively discouraged from having projects and aims that would turn them outwards towards the world. Secondly, women are encouraged to alienate themselves in their bodies. Many women already see themselves as the image in the mirror rather than the eyes looking at it. Narcissism brings about a state where they can become the object of their own loving gaze. What Beauvoir points out is that for all its allure, narcissism always has a horrifying result, an atrophied subject tragically out of touch with the world. The problem with narcissism is not that it is an abstract moral fault. It is an ethically criticizable attitude because it makes the narcissist's life close up in an all-too-concrete manner. As Beauvoir says, the narcissist drama plays itself out at the expense of real life. The narcissist, alienating herself in her imaginary double, destroys herself. She replaces acting and living with what Beauvoir describes as a paranoid delirium. To rationalize her unmeasured investment in herself, the narcissist usually comes to consider herself both very special and very misunderstood. She conjures up a kind of mystery that inhabits her and that moves life around her. Things happen to her. She lives by looking at her life as a plot governed by magical forces. Ultimately, she ends up totally dependent, demanding to be valued by a world to which she denies all value, since she alone counts in her own eyes. In making herself supreme end, Beauvoir says, the narcissist dooms herself to the most severe of slavery. Beauvoir points out that narcissism keeps women from for example, artistic achievement, and also from loving relations with others. When one's artistic or creative endeavors are just a form of glorifying oneself, they become hollow. When relationships with others are just an acting out of one's life in front of an audience, they are not genuine or reciprocal in any way. Let us return then to the short story. What I want to suggest is that we should see Margot as a contemporary version of this Beauvoirian feminine narcissism. She may have a crush on Robert, but most of all, she's infatuated with the way he looks at her. Robert kisses her on the forehead, calls her honey and sweetheart in ways that seem more parental than romantic. As one commentator pointed out, it is this fatherly attention that Margot seems to want from him. She enjoys this treatment because she's made to feel like a delicate, precious thing, as she says. She's not physically attracted to Robert, but she enjoys his protective attention. She seems to think of it as almost an accomplishment. And Robert, on the other hand, relishes the opportunity to be protective to this infantilized, fragile girl. Here is an example, a key moment in the plot when Margot is turned away from the first bar they go to because she's underage, younger than Robert thought. Humiliated and embarrassed, Margot is on the verge of tears. Robert, who had been cold and distant, changes attitude and Margot is herself newly invested in the encounter. Here is that moment. 
When Robert saw her face crumpling, a kind of magic happened. He stood up straight and wrapped his bear-like arms around her. Oh, sweetheart, he said. Oh, honey, it's okay. It's all right. Please don't feel bad. She let herself be folded against him, and she was flooded with the same feeling she had had outside the 7-Eleven, that she was a delicate, precious thing he was afraid he might break. You must think I'm such an idiot. But she knew he didn't think that, from the way he was gazing at her. In his eyes, she could see how pretty she looked, smiling through her tears in the chalky glow of the streetlight with a few flakes of snow coming down. What we see here is Margot about to embark on her first kiss with Robert, which she thinks is terrible, and yet she proceeds to laugh at his jokes and to eventually kiss him again. As a narcissist, she enjoys being able to elicit this kind of response from Robert. She finds that her tears are like a magical spell she can cast to get his attention. Margot's decision to have sex with Robert is then a continuation of this kind of self-interested generosity. After several drinks, she considers what sex with Robert would be like. She thinks it would probably be bad, but she feels a twinge of desire in imagining how excited he would be, how hungry and eager to impress her. It is feeling like an irresistible temptation that is most sexually attractive to Margot. She's both priestess and idol, as Beauvoir would put it, in these moments. Take, for example, the following passage. As they kissed, she found herself carried away by a fantasy of such pure ego that she could hardly admit, even to herself, she was having it. Look at this beautiful girl, she imagined him thinking. She's so perfect. Her body is perfect. Everything about her is perfect. She's only 20 years old. Her skin is flawless. This is no mere fantasy. This is a narcissistic mode of engagement with the world where a sexual partner becomes just another mirror. Later in the story, Margot wonders, in fact, if maybe she like what she likes most about sex is the way young men look at her. This is exactly the kind of moment that gives the story its uncomfortable and skin-crawling quality. And I think it's no coincidence that it is also an articulation of the kind of self-referential sexual enjoyment that Beauvoir so clearly identifies. She says, when she abandoned herself on the arms of a lover, the narcissist accomplished her mission. She's Venus dispensing the treasure of her beauty to the world. But of course, there's a high price to pay for narcissism. And Margot is not the perfect narcissist. That's part of what makes her a compelling character. She's aware of the emptiness of her pursuits, of her absence of connection to the world at various points, and of the actual humiliation that becomes the price of her enjoyment. She calls it, and quote here, a humiliation that was a kind of perverse cousin to arousal. This is a telling expression. What excites Margot is getting Robert's attention and being adored as a beautiful thing, but to achieve that, she must make herself vulnerable and compromise. What the story centers is really this trade of adoration for sexual submission. This leads us to the question, so what about Robert? If Margot is a narcissist, then Robert is not a clumsy, well-intentioned young man. 
He's predatorily attracted to vulnerability, and he's also caught up in a kind of masculine vanity, a certain form of alienation that Beauvoir is also interested in. He's stuck in his own solipsistic fantasy, where he handles Margot like a doll, a prop for the movie that was playing in his head, as we're told in the story. Robert is Margot's mirror, but she is his plaything, shoring up an alienated self-conception that he has. For all I've said so far, narcissism is a good way to read Cat Person. It provides us a way of explaining both the twists and turns of the plot and its deeply disturbing effect. Why does this matter? Well, I think that adopting the Bovarian reading here has an important implication. First of all, let me point something out. The dominant pop feminist reading not only provides an inadequate explanation of what's propelling the characters in the plot in Cat Person, but it also gives us a bleak picture for social progress. Remember, the zeitgeist that Cat Person was supposed to capture on this reading was one where women were finally speaking out and revealing how mundane behaviors actually constituted ways of navigating risk of responding self-protectively to a threatening patriarchal world. They were doing the best they could. The solution was then to eliminate the threat and the risk, no matter how subtle. Men needed to listen, to apologize, to understand that they may be making women uncomfortable and coercing them without even knowing. Margot became then emblematic of women doing the best they can, and in spite of themselves, still being victimized. Between Now, the interesting thing is that between Margot's and Robert's, we're left with the sense that these toxic dates will be unavoidable. And if we adopt the Bovarian lens, we can see why this is. Given their existential attitudes, there will always be a tendency towards perverse trait of adoration for sexual submission, no matter how many guardrails we put in place. This is reflected in the despair that permeates cat person. In a small interlude, Margot imagines someday having a boyfriend that could understand her and would cringe along with her at Robert's faults. But he will never exist, Margot quickly concludes. Heterosexuality is portrayed by cat person as a struggle for power between incompatible desires. And what I'm pointing to is that this bleak picture depends on leaving unanalyzed Margot and Robert's existential attitudes and, uh, and assimilating Margot's in particular to a sort of doing the best one can under the circumstances. There is a reification here of narcissism as a kind of feature of the environment in which Margot moves. The Beauvoirian reading provides us then with hope. What Beauvoir tells us 
is that subordination is not just something done to women, but something women do to themselves. Narcissism is one way in which that happens. Now, if narcissism propels the story, and narcissism is not an inevitable, inevitable self-protective reaction, it is actively adopted, then Margot is, like the epigraph of the second sex, half victim, half accomplice. This means she could be otherwise, and she could do otherwise. This leads us to conclude, borrowing here the words from Kristana Harp, that although oppressed, women are not completely powerless in the face of social forces. And it is this agency that women continue to possess that renders feminist social transformation possible. I take this to be the insight that Beauvoir can contribute to the debate around cat person and cat person-like situations. The Beauvoirian reading points us to the importance of self-transformation for feminist liberation. Women must relinquish the repressive satisfactions of narcissism, as Sandra Lee Barkey has put it, if they are to exit their subordinate position. They must actively unlearn this way of being in the world for the thrill of being seen. On this interpretation, cat person should not be a lamentation of inevitable the inevitable struggle for dominance within heterosexual relations, but a wake-up call for a transformation of both men and women's attitudes towards their lives and others. Thank you.